Well, ladies, we're like five minutes into our time now, but that's okay, because God knows what we need. Um, And I'm just thankful that you guys are here, and thankful that we have this opportunity, because not everyone has the chance to sit under this kind of teaching, and doing it all together, growing together, is such a gift. So I'm just going to open up with a word of prayer and then Holly's going to come and share the disciplines with us. Um, I hope you guys are just blessed by hearing that from others among us, you know, because it helps you to see how God is working in their lives and to see that you're not alone in your struggles and how encouraging it is to hear some, like someone from Holly, Hear from someone like Holly, who has been at this journey for a long time, and you can see just how God has carried her and taken her through a lot of ups and downs, and how He's faithful. He just does that. So, thank you, Holly, for being willing to share with us. And um, so, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we can get going. Dear Lord God, we love you. We thank you for just you who you are, that we could know you, that we could have um, assurance that you are who you are. You are the great I am, the powerful, almighty creator of all things, and yet you made a way for us to be with you, to know you, to thank you for sending your son that he would be obedient and die in our place, pay the debt that we could never pay, that we could be your children, be called your children, be adopted into your family, and that we could um, understand how to love each other in a way that we wouldn't know otherwise. Because, Lord, we are, we know ourselves, too, from your word, that we are weak and that we are prone to wander, we are prone to, to lift up self, not deny self. We're prone to just want to go our own way, Lord, but you you intervene and you, you stop us, you show us a better way. So we thank you that we can rub up against each other and see how that works, how you are changing us. May we be encouraged by each other and by our walks and by how you are so faithful to, to transform us and make us into your people who can do your work. We thank you today for Holly and for Scott who are Scott Demarest, who's here to teach us from your word. Lord, thank you for the elders of our church who just always have um, a word and an eye on us. And thank you that they are good shepherds. Help us to be good sheep, to follow them well, and to be encouraged by what they have to teach us, knowing that it's from you, Lord. We just pray that you'll be lifted high and honored today as we worship you through your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Ready, Holly? Okay, hi. Okay, good morning. Um, I am so thankful to be able to be a part of Wellspring this year. Um, It's been a few years that I haven't been able to um, serve due to various reasons, 
and I've truly missed it. The equipping and the encouragement that um, is offered here is unique and incredibly helpful in our daily walk as women who love the Lord. Recently, I was reading in Matthew 16, and um, if you would open your Bibles there, uh, we'll go ahead and um, I'll give a little bit of context before we get to our specific passage, which will be Matthew 16 and then verses 13 through 23 will be where we're at. Give you a second. Okay. Um, It should tie nicely in with our Wellspring purpose this morning. Here we have uh, Jesus, again, being tested by the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, who were asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Um, Notice that the word the is not in front of Sadducees. It's just in front of the Pharisees. And the reason is um, because that um, they're both two opposing religious groups who normally are at odds with one another. Um, But instead, they have now come together to form a larger force against um, Jesus and his teaching. Jesus knew their motives, and he wasn't going to quarrel with them. Jesus simply tells them that they are so easily... (laughs) Okay, wait, I'm sorry. Okay, so so easily tells them um, that they are easily... They easily look away to the sky to determine the weather. Um, And so... um, And he's unwilling to... And they are unwilling to see the obvious sign of Christ himself as God in the flesh. So he went to the other side of the sea with his disciples who were concerned that they hadn't brought any bread with them. Jesus commands them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. His disciples were unclear as to the meaning, thinking he was talking about bread since he said the word leaven, but Jesus is surprised that they had already forgotten that he supplied plenty of bread in the past when he fed a group of 5,000 and then again 4,000 with bread to spare. His disciples then realize that Jesus' meaning of the word leaven is actually the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So let's go ahead and read now in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, And some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, Well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. 
You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. We see here that this is where Jesus wants his his disciples to evaluate where their beliefs are about his identity and where their hearts are. Peter affirms his belief that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, and more than that, his response indicates that he now had a faith in Jesus as the son of the living God that he didn't have before. He and his fellow disciples had witnessed Jesus' miracles and listened to his claims of being the Messiah, and it seemed as though Jesus had fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies, but now God had granted him faith to believe from his heart, knowing that he is the Son of God should, and should be able to trust him even to the point of accepting his death and resurrection without being shaken. This is when Jesus begins to tell them more of what is to happen to him. The the MacArthur Study Bible says that Peter is rebuked by Jesus for getting in the way of God's sovereign plan in that the Lord was pleased to crush him. Christ had come with the express purpose of dying as an atonement for sin, and those who would thwart his mission were doing Satan's work. As I pondered... (laughs) Um, these verses that morning, I found myself, first of all, just amazed at Jesus' patience with his disciples, and then also his genuine love for them. Here they were so intimate with Jesus, and yet they struggled with what he was telling them. There are and have been seasons in my life that have and are filled with much adversity, but that doesn't catch God off guard. He knows everything that's going on in my life, and yours, (laughs) He also knows what lies ahead. He's orchestrating all things to fulfill his eternal redemptive purposes and to glorify himself. He cares. He's orchestrating, um, I'm sorry, (laughs) he cares. So asking myself the same question when confronted with my circumstances and faulty thinking because my first thought is not always a biblical one. Who do you, Holly, say that I am? And then the follow-up question, and then what? (laughs) My dad died in 1995, and my mom married a kind man who then died in 2010. Thankfully, my mom just lives only a few minutes from us, and I'm able to see her frequently. We slowly began seeing cognitive impairment over these last 12 years. My mom just turned 92 on Thursday. She has dementia. I wasn't even sure what I was dealing with at first and questioned her when she didn't follow through with simple tasks like washing dishes or pulling weeds or paying bills, which I would find in the trash. Mm. My mom has always been a strong person and to slowly watch her not be able to communicate like she used to was and is emotionally draining at times. She's more confused and needs 24-hour supervision We installed door sensors and cameras, and our daughter, Amanda, lives with her. And so in the mornings, when Amanda leaves for work, um, I'm there to assist my mom, uh, getting her up, showering her, and getting her dressed for the day. I style her hair, give her a haircut, and we often read the Bible, or mom enjoys listening to praise music and watching the birds eat in her backyard. While I do the housekeeping, (laughs) I then bring her to my house for lunch and um, take her for some of 
the activities in the afternoon where she goes to Oakwood, which actually she just made this this week, which is a bookmark <laughs> with pressed flowers. And um, as we drive, I reach over and hold her hand. And most days she makes me laugh with something she says or does. Um, the evenings are a bit harder as there is more confusion and even talk of wanting to die. The only thing that has helped in those moments is sharing the wonderful truth of the gospel, the hope of heaven, and probably more for me than for her. Who do you, Holly, say that I am? Oh, Lord, you are the God who sees and knows everything, and dementia is not anything you don't understand, for you created our bodies, and we have been made in your image. You're not surprised by the confusion in my mother's head. Hmm. And now what? <laughs> you will equip me to offer the words that will comfort her. And I have a journal entry <laughs> that I thought I would share to give um, a little more insight. Oh, okay. Oh, Lord. It has been so long since writing. I don't always journal. <laughs> I need you. And even though I pray, somehow writing seems to bring clarity. Father, you alone know my most inner thoughts, desires, and motivations because you are omniscient, all-knowing. I thank you that nothing is hidden from your sight. You are not fooled and will not be mocked. I have felt so stretched and conflicted at times, battling the sin of selfishness and an unwillingness to love. There is a weariness that comes with this constant caregiving. And I realize it cannot be my excuse because you grant me all that is necessary to live a godly life by your grace. It is, is it that I'm attempting to rely on my own strength yet again? Please, Lord, show me each of my specific sins that I can repent. Surely my focus is wrong. And those expectations <laughs> that my life was going to... <laughs> be different must be okay because you have deemed this good for me. You show me that the unkindness that I have had toward loved ones and of not putting on a heart of compassion or not being gentle nor humble. Oh, Father, I can easily and clearly see my own sinful heart. Help me, please. And now, after the rest you granted me, I see my lack of joy. Why? I must bring my heart to you and show me. You must show me more of you, Lord. And by your grace, I am able to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, keeping my eyes on the prize that is set before me in Jesus. Not looking behind me, but pressing on. Hmm. Philippians three twelve through 15 says, Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind 
and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. <sighs> Thank you, Lord, for revealing to me that my attitude has not been pleasing to you, nor does it bring the light of Christ to bear, and you desire me to be obedient from the heart again, showing my desperate state for you to work in me. How gracious and kind you are, Father. Mm -hmm. So much to be thankful for as my mind has stayed on thee. You bring sound thinking, changing my heart to desire only you, knowing that you are what satisfies my thirsty soul. Look what your spirit does. Romans 8.26 says, in, well, in the same way, which is referring back to a hope that is unseen and in which I wait for with perseverance. The Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. Uh, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Oh, what a God, what a Savior. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And not all my journal entries are that long, but I was pretty burdened that day. And so thankful for the clarity of mind that God gives us. So let's turn our binders over <laughs> and review our purpose, which is to, we can say it together if you like. <laughs> um, it's to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Okay, I have combined that purpose with Discipline 1, which is the faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the Word of God and in particular the gospel. Shepherding my heart that day and every day looks like me bringing my emotions, thoughts, and attitudes in subjection to the Word of God. It's what I need all the time, but it's not what I always do. Wrong attitudes destroy affections more quickly than wrong actions do. Anger and pride, selfishness and impatience, lust and greed and laziness, disrespect and ungratefulness all take their toll on any relationship and specifically a marriage. The increasing care for my mom has been an opportunity for me to see just where my, I'm placing my trust. He brings me back to the truth of his word in that he has provided loving leadership in my home through my husband. We haven't agreed with how to care for my mom all the time. In the little things, or it might be in how things are presented, but as I realize that God's plan is so much greater and better, I surely don't have to agree as much as simply do what he has asked me to do. Showing my husband respect is what God commands me to do, Ephesians 5.22. It's easy when he leads in a way that I like, but a woman who fears the Lord is willing to honor and follow him because her trust is in the one who knows all things. She entrusts herself to God who judges righteously, 1 Peter 2.23, and is willing to suffer according to the will of God. 
Jesus was willing to do this, and he is my advocate and my high priest who sympathizes with my weaknesses, Hebrews 4.15. She also does not give way to fear as she willingly submits to her husband, and she is more concerned with the inner quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, 1 Peter 3.1-6. She has hope. Romans 15.13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Her strength comes from the Lord, and that's Psalm 9, 9 and 10. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. I can tell you I often had asked myself that day and others since, who, who do you, Holly, say that I am? particularly when I am at odds with my husband, his decisions, or my circumstances that haven't changed. His answer is still to put my trust in him and to be faithful to what he asks of me in that moment. When I ask him to show me my sin, he does, and I then can go back and ask for forgiveness. This passage has helped me in so many ways as I think on the various trials that God has permitted in my life, even before I was a follower of Christ. I can look back and see God's loving kindness. The difference, though, would be where my trust was and now is. I think discipline two was in there. (laughs) And now um, discipline three, um, with a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home, a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Years, uh, several years ago, um, well, actually a lot of years ago, there was an older godly woman who invited me to her house for a neighborhood Bible study. She must have seen that I really needed a lot of help. (laughs) She shared the gospel with me, and I saw her actually look to the Word of God for answers to everyday questions about life. That was also the first time anyone asked me what my husband thought on a particular issue. (laughs) I had never really thought about asking him. (laughs) Oh, so much to learn. (laughs) This led to a ministry I was a part of for about 12 years that focused on Titus II. One day, my husband suggested that I begin a Bible study in our home for women. (laughs) Who do you, Holly, say that I am? Oh, Lord, you are my Redeemer, the one who brought me out of darkness into your marvelous light, who teaches me your ways, how to live a life that is pleasing to you in my household, and that gives me opportunity to share Jesus. So in 2007, with a like-minded friend of mine, we started a study. Um, Actually, it's just sharing Jesus with other women. It has looked different over the years with offering childcare some years and having it in the mornings or now in the evenings at my mom's house. (laughs) I've been stretched and often wondered about stopping, particularly during certain seasons. And so I leave it in God's hands, being simply a willing servant, being about my father's business, believing that my expectations are in him alone. And so, friends, let me ask, as Jesus does ask us all, who do you say that I am?
Thank you, Holly. It's a blessing. Okay. Um, before we get started, I just want to thank you all for being here. Um, I'm sure you hear this often, but I want to tell this to every time I stand in front of Wellspring and every time I stand in front of Build. Um, when you're here, uh, you are doing the work that the Christian is, is to do, and that is to be used by God to build up the body. And so when you sit together in your discussion groups and you share your answers from your homework, you're talking about what God is teaching you and that sharpens one another and you're sharpened by the others. And so thank you for coming. It would be easier for you to be somewhere else right now, probably at home doing whatever. Um, But thank you for taking the time and the energy to get here. It's a blessing that you're here. And it's my privilege to stand here before you this morning. Um, This morning, we're going to be looking at decision-making Um, according to God's will. And specifically, we're going to look at biblical decision-making and the fallacy of finding God's will. We face a lot of decisions in the course of a week or a month, and some of those decisions are small and some of those are large. Um, We can find ourselves saying, okay, what's the Lord's will for me in this today? I need to know the Lord's will because, after all, I, I don't want to be outside of the Lord's will as I make this decision that's in front of me. So I need to know the Lord's, uh, the Lord's will in this. And here is the question we want to consider this morning. We want to think about this question carefully because it's a really important question. And that question is this. Is it God's will that you find his will in every decision that you need to make? If it is, we can be sure that scripture will be clear and it will guide us and it will help us and it will serve as instruction for us on what we should do. But we need to allow scripture to tell us whether or not it is biblical to try to find God's will in every single decision we make. And so let's uh, do this. Let's start with scripture itself. We're going to start with Ephesians chapter 5. If you would turn to Ephesians 5, that would be a blessing. Um, Paul spent the first three chapters of Ephesians explaining how it is that God saves. Then he spends the back half of the letter explaining how you live in light of what God has done to save you. And so when you get to chapter 5, he's in the middle of a long explanation of how we live out the Christian life. And he says in verse 15, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the will of the Lord is. So what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at Scripture and see what it says about finding God's will. And what we're going to see this morning is that God's will can be seen in two different ways. On one hand, you have God's revealed will, and on the other hand, you have God's unrevealed will. God's revealed will is the cases in which God has revealed what you should do before you make a decision. God's unrevealed will is the cases in which God has not revealed what you should do before you make a decision. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at God's revealed will first. And we're going to try and hold in our mind this idea that that God does have a will and it is either revealed or it is unrevealed. So looking at God's revealed will, we're going to see that God reveals his will in Scripture in three ways. And the first is that God reveals his will through his commands. God's commands in Scripture reveal his will. So Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 is very, very helpful. Jesus is towards the end of teaching 
the Sermon on the Mount, and he, he writes and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So what Jesus tells us here is how it is that a person enters the kingdom of heaven. We enter into the kingdom of heaven by doing God's will. The rest of scripture tells us what that will is, but he tells us how we can know we will enter into the kingdom of heaven, and that is by doing his will. That's really encouraging. We're going to look at two specific references from 1 Thessalonians to see specific examples of what God's will is. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Thess 5. We're going to look there, and then we're going to turn back one chapter to 1 Thess 4. 1 Thess 5. And what we need to know about the church in Thessalonica is that Paul went there on his second missionary journey. He stayed for a very short period of time, and he had to leave because of persecution. And so he's writing instructions here in hindsight after he visited with them. And they want to know how to live. And so he says in chapter 5, verse 18, in everything, give thanks. This is really meaningful to a persecuted church. In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So if we want to know what God's will is, here in verse 18, it tells us, give thanks. God's will is that we give thanks in everything. If you back up one chapter to chapter 4, at uh, the beginning of the chapter, Paul has an extensive teaching on immorality and purity and, and God's instruction for us there. And he starts with God's will. We're going to look at verse 3 in chapter 4. This is the will of God, your sanctification. So God's will is your sanctification. And then Paul spells out three ways that that applies to the person. And he says that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is that each, each brother knows how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not like the Gentiles. And the third way is that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, for the Lord is the avenger. So what is God's will? God's will is our sanctification. So one way we know God's revealed will is we look at the commands in Scripture that tell us his revealed will. And if you read your New Testament, you will find that there are 1,100 instructions in the New Testament. 1,100. It starts in Matthew's Gospel. And Matthew starts his Gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. There's no instructions there. But if you get past the genealogy of Jesus and you start reading, it doesn't take you very long to get to the first instruction in your New Testament. And if you go to the back end of your New Testament, the last verse in Revelation 22... And you start working backwards, it doesn't take you very long to get to the last instruction either. The New Testament is full of instructions. There are 1,100 instructions in your New Testament. So that's how God reveals his will. He gives us commands and instructions. But God also has broad intentions for us. Things that are not a specific instruction, but it's a broad intention for us. And those broad intentions might have specific instructions underneath them, but it's an overarching broad intention. And we see that in Romans chapter 12. Uh, again, this is another letter of Paul's, and this is the way Paul writes his letters. A lot of times he spends the first part of his letter explaining how it is that God saves, and then he spends the last part of his letter explaining how you live things out. So in Romans, he spends 11 chapters talking about how it is that God saves. For the Gentile and the Jew brings them into one new man. And then he spends the last five chapters explaining how you live in light of what God has done. So the very second verse, the, the, the second verse in his explanation of, of how you live out the Christian life talks about God's will. 
He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. That is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. So this is similar to what God says about specific instructions, but these are more general and broad. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is a general statement about what believers must be doing. It is God's will that we have a renewed mind. And how you do that are contained in other scriptures throughout the New Testament. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Uh, apply the scriptures. Pray over the scriptures. Repent from your sin where you're in disobedience to God's will. Confess your sin. There's lots of instructions that go into renewing your mind. But that's an overarching um, purpose for God for the believer. So that's the second thing that God does to reveal his will is he gives us broad intentions for us. And the third way that God reveals his will is in human history. If you just look at human history, you'll see that God reveals his will in human history. And we're going to look at two different ways that God reveals his will in human history. We're going to look at it in terms of how it is that God saves. And then we're going to look at it in terms of how it is that God directs the flow and the path and the course of human history. So we'll go to Galatians 1. And Galatians 1 is like the start of a, a lot of other of Paul's epistles. And it's very similar to Ephesians and other letters. He talks about how it is that God saves. We're going to look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. So it was God's plan in human history that he would rescue a certain group of people. We know from other New Testament contexts, the beginning of Ephesians 1, that God chose a subset of all of human history, of all human beings, before the foundations of the world, that they would be holy and blameless before him. God's will is that he would save a certain subset of all of humanity. He chose them. And he determined that he would put their sin on the person of Jesus Christ at the cross in the year A.D. 30, approximately. People who came before Christ, people who are contemporary to Christ, and people who came after Christ. He took the sins of all of those people and he put all of those sins upon Jesus. First Peter tells us that, that Jesus bore all of our sins in his body on the cross. That was God's will. And then God's will was to dispatch his Holy Spirit into the life of a person at a particular moment and apply the work that Christ did at the cross to that individual person. Some of us might not be exactly sure on what day it was that God saved us. We can point to maybe a shorter season where we think it was somewhere in there. For myself, it was July of 1981. Somewhere in July, I think the Lord saved me. I couldn't tell you what day, but he, I'm pretty sure he saved me in that month. But it was somewhere in that window of time that God dispatched his Holy Spirit to me and regenerated me and made me new. And so that's God's will. God's will is that he is going to save particular people. And he orders the events of human history to make that happen. Uh, Mary, he ordered Mary's life. He ordered Joseph's life. He ordered their ancestors that came before them. Both of them are descendants of David. So we have the Christ, we have the Messiah that, that Holly was telling us about just a few minutes ago. And then you think about human history and how it is that the Lord controlled human history to, 
brings somebody into your life to share the gospel with you, the message that saves you. And so God reveals his will through the course of human history and the way that he saves people. If you're here today and you're a, a sister in Christ, praise God. God worked out his will for you by saving you. That was his will. So that's the first way that God reveals his will. The second way is God reveals his will for us in the course of human history. And when we think about um, the way that God spells out the end times for us. And I don't think I have a lot of this in my notes. I don't think I do have too much of it. But when you read your Bibles in your New Testament, you can see that God tells us how this age is going to end, how the next age is going to come about, how that age is, is going to, what it's going to consist of. We have this age, and then we have a seven-year period of tribulation, what the, the Old Testament refers to as Jacob's trouble. And then we have a 1,000-year period where Christ reigns on the earth. That is God's will for human history. And God has told us that in our Bibles. And it's knowable. We can read it and go and find it. So God reveals his will for how it is that we, he saves people. And he reveals his will for human history. And it's knowable. All we have to do is read it. So that's the first form that God's will comes in. And the second form is God's unrevealed will. And this is where we need to see the distinction between something that God commands and something that God doesn't command. Before we get started, we need to know that God gives us lots and lots of principles in Scripture. And it is our job as believers and followers of Christ to apply those principles to a decision that we're going to make where God hasn't given us a clear instruction. Should I buy the red car or the blue car? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to list, um, there's five passages from Proverbs. I'm going to read the first three from Proverbs 16. I'll just mention the other two. And what we'll do here is we will see that God has an unrevealed will. So Proverbs 16.1 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from Yahweh, is from the Lord. So the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. There's God's will. It's the answer of the tongue. Verse 3, Commit your works to Yahweh and your plans will be established. The establishment of your plans is God's will. Verse 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So we make a plan. We plan our way. That's a really good thing to do. But the passage tells us that the Lord directs our steps. That is the Lord's will. And so what you see at the end of these three verses is God's will being made clear at the point of the decision. But it's not made clear before the decision. They don't reveal specifically what God's will is. You can't read these verses and say, oh, I, I know what God's will is. You see that there is an answer from the tongue. And God brings that at the point of decision. There is a, a time in which the way is established. And that's not known beforehand. And there is a time in which God directs your steps. That you don't know beforehand. Proverbs 19.21 and 2024 say the same thing. So when you're seeking God's will for the decision before you, oftentimes it's in an area of God's unrevealed will. Another way to refer to that is an area of freedom. And here's the question that doesn't get asked enough. Does scripture tell us that we can and we must 
know God's unrevealed will for a specific situation before we make that decision. Does scripture tell us that we can know and that we must know his will before we make that decision? And this is the simple truth. This is the plain truth. The answer to that question is no. That practice, that concept is not found in your Bible. Christians are never directed by God through his word to find his unrevealed will before they make a decision. Again, there's an awful lot of instruction in our Bible. 1,100 instructions in the New Testament. When you read the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, you see that God gave the, the Jews 613 instructions. There were a little less than 300 instructions that they must obey. There were a little more than 300 instructions that they, they must not do, things they must not do. So God has plenty of instructions for us. But we know that there's more to life. There's a lot more than the instructions that God gives us. And those are areas of God's unrevealed will. So I want to give two examples from the book of Romans that show us this. And we're going to turn to Romans 15 and we're going to see Paul's thoughts about going to visit the church in Rome at the end of the letter. And we're going to see his thoughts about that same thing at the beginning of the letter. We're going to start at the end of the letter. Chapter 15, verses 30 through 32. This is before Paul gets to chapter 16, where he explains all of his greetings for everybody. Right before he expresses his greetings, he says, Now I urge you, starting in verse 30, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. So he's saying, pray for me. Please pray for me. That's good. Pray that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. So pray for my service. Pray for me. Pray specifically for my service. I'm laboring. Now we get to verse 32, and this is where we want to put our focus. So that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. So that I may come to you in joy by the will of God. So Paul desires to go to Rome. He strongly desires to go to Rome. But notice that Paul isn't writing as if he's asking God whether he should go to Rome. Paul isn't writing here saying, listen, I'm praying really hard to see if I should go. Um, that isn't something that, that God had revealed to him in his word. If you go back to chapter 1 in Romans, we're going to look at verses 9 and 10. This is the section before you get to the second half of chapter 1 where Paul is talking about God's judgment against the unrighteous. In verses 9 and 10, Paul is he's opening his letter and he's, he's letting it out that he wants to come to them. And he says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request. So he's always praying for these people. At the end of the letter, he's saying, please pray for me. At the beginning of the letter, he's saying, I'm praying for you. And this is what he prays. If perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. He's saying, Lord, if it is your will, bring me there. Turns out that Paul did go to visit them. 
He didn't know that at the beginning, and he had no idea that he would get there the way that he did as a prisoner after rotting in a, a jail in Caesarea for two years under Felix and Festus. And that there would be this massive shipwreck on the way, and he would spend time on Malta. And that he would get there for the purpose of appearing before Caesar. He had no idea what God's purposes were. He said, if it is the will of God, I'll do this. So that's an example of God's unrevealed will. And Paul didn't find out until it actually happened what it was. Let's turn to James chapter 4. This puts it in really good perspective for us. And as we, as we do this, we, we want to keep some principle here in mind. And James mentions this, and that is that we don't know the number of days of our lives. I don't know whether I have another four decades in front of me or another four hours in front of me. James 4, verses 13 through 15. This is really, really helpful when we talk about our plans. And again, plans are really, really good things to make. Scripture instructs us all over the place to make plans. Jesus, uh, sorry, James writes, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, and we'll spend a year there and engage in business, and we will make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. And then do this or that. Look at what James is saying in verse 14. He's saying, you don't know what your life will be like. You don't know the circumstances of your life. You don't know who God will bring into your life. You don't know the needs that God will bring into your life. You don't know. You get to verse 15. The way we should approach this is to say, Lord, if I am even alive, if you even give me breath tomorrow, I will do this or that. There you see the gating factor in all of this is God's will. And we don't know what that is until we get there. That's why we always say, comma, Lord willing. One final passage for this. We want to make sure we go to the Old Testament in this so we can see that this has been God's plan throughout the full counsel of Scripture. We're going to turn to Deuteronomy 29, and we're going to look at verse 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29. And while you're turning there, we'll just get a, a brief summary of chapter 28. Chapter 28 is Moses instructing Israel, and he's looking forward, and he's saying he's got a 67-verse chapter, I think it is. And he spends the first 14 or 15 verses explaining God's blessings for them if they obey. He says, you're going to have freedom from your enemies. I will protect you. He says, the fruit will be heavy on the vine. You will have a, a rich land flowing with milk and honey. You will have children. This will be great. And you will be a light to all the nations where they can come to know me if you will obey me. But he spends the majority of the, the chapter telling them what will happen when they disobey. And he says somewhere in the middle of that, you're going to be carried away in nakedness and shame. And they were. So I say that to say that, Paul, or, uh, that Moses is looking to the future as he's saying this. So you get to 29 and it's got the same thrust behind it. We're looking to the future. And in verse 29, you read. Where is my verse 29? Here it is. The secret things belong to Yahweh, our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. 
So Moses is saying, I just gave you God's law. It has all of these instructions, things that you must do, things that you must not do. I gave you that. That is what you need to focus on. Spend all your time and your energy doing the things that I tell you to do. There are other things that I didn't tell you about. Those are mine. They're secret things and they belong to me. Don't focus on those. Make it your job to do what I told you to do. So the conclusion here is, do you want to go about decision-making the right way? Then don't look for that which God says you can't find. Don't try to know the thing that you can't know at a time. If it's not one of God's explicitly given instructions in your Bible, either Old Testament or New Testament, it's not something you, you know. What it is, is it's an area of freedom, and you need to use principles from God's word to help you make that decision. You need to use prayer, you need to use the word, you need to use the counsel of good friends, and we'll get to that in, in a bit. What we're going to look at here are six ways that man tends to try to make decisions in areas that relate to God's unrevealed will. And then, since we're an equal opportunity employer, we are going to have six principles to use how to make a godly decision in an area of freedom. I want to list these because it's important. These things are, are found today. They're all over the place, and you hear them all the time. And we need to guard against these things because these things will lead us into trouble when we make our decisions. I'm going to take a time out. You guys keep writing. That's very important. Stay liquidated while you're writing. That's important. Man. All right. God is with us. We are going to do this. Okay. Uh, okay. The first of these six methods is a purely pragmatic approach. And the emphasis here is purely. So we're going to be talking about the pragmatist who is just um, purely a pragmatist. And so there's no other influence allowed to impact the decision-making process. So what the pragmatist does, we know this, you make a list, you've got all your pros and you've got all your cons, you've got this giant list and you look at it and you put it into a spreadsheet, you've got a nice formula, it does something and it gives you an answer that says yes or no. And there's everything right about gathering the information. We need to gather information to make wise decisions. The issue here is that that's all that the pragmatist does. The pragmatist only gathers the information. They make their decision only based on data. It doesn't cross her mind to look into what the Bible says about things. So, for example, if you're a pragmatist and you're going to buy a car, she checks out the interest rates, she checks out the cost of the car, she checks out all the different trim levels in the car, but it doesn't cross her mind to look at what the Bible says about debt or contentment or the fear of man or anything else like that. The pragmatist will say that she's not intentionally against the Bible, but she thinks the Bible says less about these decisions than it actually does because there's all these principles that we need to bring to bear on the issue that the pragmatist is saying, I don't even want to consider these. The pragmatist might actually say the Bible is important to her, but she makes the decisions in her life as if it's not. So guard against this. Be very, very careful. Yes, gather all the information you need to. Take that information, but don't let that be the end of it. 
The second is the lucky dick approach with scripture. Um, This is getting a little dated, um, name it and claim it. I call it blab it and grab it. Now the person dips into her Bible randomly until she finds a phrase or a verse or even a story that fits her need and it motivates her to make a particular decision. But what marks that use of the Bible is a wrong view of the Bible and a wrong method of interpreting the Bible correctly. You guys all know 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. This is Paul's instruction to Timothy, and Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus. So Paul is saying, listen, you've got to handle the word right. He's exactly right. But that same principle applies to us. And it applies to us when we're making decisions. We can't just grab a verse and say, see, we have to understand the context of the verse. We have to understand what the flow of thought is in the verse. Using God's word in this way distorts scripture into a system of stories with personal interpretation, personal interpretation that no one else can see or evaluate. So we need to be very, very careful when we use our Bibles in making a decision that we're looking at the context in which the passage of in which we find our verses. The true meaning of a passage comes by carefully considering the context. And we know this. When you ignore the context of Scripture, you can take a verse and make it mean pretty much anything you want. Right? Just think about your own words. If you're writing a letter to somebody, or if you're in a phone conversation, it's a nice long conversation, and somebody just peels out of that conversation 11 words that you say and they take those words and they stick them somewhere else you look at that and you say well that's not what i said that's not what i mean that's what we do when we grab a verse and we just use it for it so guard against that Uh, the third approach is one that's very very common i hear it all the time i saw it in writing this year and that's the prophecy approach and this is a claim to direct revelation from god for a specific situation And it goes something like this. I just felt like the Lord was telling me to do this. I just felt like the Lord was telling me to do that. It's claiming that God is communicating directly through you, uh, to you. That he's communicating exclusively and directly to you. And what we want to do here is we want to go to our Old Testaments and look what God says about the person to whom he communicates directly. And that person is the prophet. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 18. There were a group of people in Old Testament Israel that God communicated with directly. He spoke to them. And then they, in turn, spoke to the people. So first we're going to look at what God says about that person. He says in verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So the one to whom God speaks, as we see at the beginning of the verse, is the one who is raised up by God. And God puts his words in the prophet's mouth. And then the prophet speaks those words verbatim to the people. They don't put their own twist on it. They don't put their own vocabulary or their own syntax on it. They speak his words verbatim. You're reading your Old Testament, and and a lot of times you see this. You see the Lord saying, okay, the Lord spoke to the prophet, and, and the Lord said to the prophet, tell Israel this. And then you read several verses 
of revelation that that prophet is to tell to Israel. And then you go a few verses later, and then you see that the prophet actually says those very same words. So the prophet is the one that God speaks to, and then they speak verbatim. It's imperative that they get it exactly right. And look at what, if we look four verses later, we'll see what uh, God says about the person who claims to have received revelation from God if he's not right 100% of the time. Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken of it presumptuously. And God says, you shall not be afraid of him. So God says, don't be afraid of that person. Don't esteem that person. Don't revere that person. Revere the, revere the true prophet that I communicate with. But the one who's not right every single time, do not fear that person. I want us to turn to Jeremiah 23. We're going to look there and we're going to see what God says about his disposition towards the person who says, I heard from the Lord. This is what God says about that person, the one who claims to have heard directly from the Lord. And there's a context here. This is Jeremiah. So this is right before Israel's exile, Judah's exile into Babylon. And there was a subset of men, false prophets, and they had a message for Israel. And their message was this. Listen, let's go to Egypt. Egypt is on our side. We'll go to Egypt and we will go there as free men. We'll go there before this exile happens. So let's go to Egypt. When actually the message from God is, I am going to take you into exile because that is what is good for you. That is what you need. And you're going to be there 70 years and then I'm going to bring you back. So what we have here is God's message towards this, this crowd of guys who are trying to, to mislead Israel. And Jeremiah writes, thus says Yahweh of hosts. So this is directly from God. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. It's going to be futile to go to Egypt. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of Yahweh. So God is telling us when a person says, I heard this, this is your own imagination. And then drop down to verse 31 and you'll see God's disposition towards that person, towards the one who says, I heard from God. God writes, behold, I am against the prophets, declares Yahweh, who use their tongues and declare the Lord declares. God says, I'm against that person. When God speaks to us today, he speaks to us through his word. The word that was finalized in the canon of scripture centuries, millennia ago. God is actually against that person. So this method of making a decision gives the appearance of putting God at the center of the decision-making process. But look who's really at the, the center of the process. It's the individual. Because they're saying, I heard from God, and this is the message I heard from him. And what you have today are people who say they hear from God, but they don't want to be bound by the consequence if they're not exactly right. God's consequence is he's against that person. That is not a good place to be. So be on guard against that. Then the fourth one is the peaceful approach. And this one I want to spend some time on because we hear this. And sometimes we're inclined to say this ourselves. It goes something like this. 
I'm going to do this because I just have a piece about it. I've got a real piece about this. I'm feeling really good about this decision. It's warm and it's fuzzy and it's going to work. What this method assumes is that God communicates his unrevealed through a sense of inner calm. Right? I have a piece about this, therefore it must be God's will. And this is never taught in Scripture. You cannot go to a chapter or a verse that tells you that you make a decision for something because God gave you a piece about it. Just consider Jesus prior to his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here's Luke 22. Jesus withdrew from the disciples, the three that he took with him, about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Remove this cup. And the cup was the cup of God's wrath and anger and fury. And Jesus was in such agony over this that his, his sweat was dropping like drops of blood, right? There was no peace in this, but this was absolutely the right thing to do. Again, this is a decision-making process that's centered in man and not in God. And what you'll see in all of these is that the thought process is entirely centered in man. It's not in God. So inner peace before you make a decision, that is not a solid ground for making your decision. Don't stand there. But an inner peace after you make a biblically informed decision, that's totally different. That's a good place to be. Make your decision and trust the Lord in working that out. The next one is the open and the, or the closed door approach. Uh, specifically the open door. God opened all the doors, so it must be his will. This is similar to the peaceful approach. What you really mean is, if the circumstances make it easy for me to do something, then that must be the right decision. And again, this is never taught in Scripture. Now, does God go before you? Does he work in the course of events to make something feasible, make it possible? Yes, he does. But the ease of something is not the basis for your decision. And part of the reason for this is the process of assessing your circumstances is completely arbitrary. We've got a whole bunch of people in this room and we're all different. What might be easy for one person because of their life circumstances and their skills, maybe their relationships, their family, that might be very, very difficult for somebody else. It's completely arbitrary. What if Paul made his decisions in his ministry based on whether the next step was easy? I'm going to read you the names of four cities that Paul ministered in. And let's take a look at this and consider, is this an open door? Lystra, Paul was stoned and left for dead. Philippi, he was beaten and he was put in stocks. Thessalonica, there were riots. The Jews incited riots. And so Paul fled to Berea and the Jews brought those riots to Berea with him. And in Athens, Paul was mocked. If you want to get a scope of the full extent of Paul's difficulties in ministry, just read 2 Corinthians 11. There is a long list. A night in the open ocean, freezing cold, no food, no water, no friends. Everybody's against him. Fighting with wild beasts. That's the full list of his hardships. Those circumstances were not open doors. There were hardships involved, but Paul walked through them anyway. 
If you want to think about an open door, think about David's adultery with Bathsheba. Second Samuel 11. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. He was the king. And there was another door that was open and he saw from his roof a woman bathing. So the doors were wide open for David. That didn't mean that he needed to go forward and run through that door. <clears throat> but sometimes God does close the door. And this was mentioned in a question after the, the lesson on Wednesday. And this was a really good thing. I'm so thankful the question was asked. The question was, um, what about the times when, when God actually does prevent something in Scripture? Is that a closed door? And what came up was the situation in Acts chapter 16, where Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's in what's present day Turkey. There's an area, Asia Minor, and Paul was intending to go to the area of Bithynia. I'm going to read two verses from Acts 16, verses 6 and 7. So Paul is speaking of they here, and that is um, Paul and his missionaries who are with him, his traveling companions. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So what we have here is the Holy Spirit is preventing them from going somewhere. It's not an option. That's something completely different than the option is there, but there are some difficulties in place. The Holy Spirit was saying, I'm going to prevent you from going there. And here's the way to see that. Let's say you were um, you're in high school and you're making plans for college. And part of the things you need to consider when you're planning for college is funding your college expenses, right? And let's say you have a, a generous grandfather who said, I will help you with your college expenses. And you've got that commitment. He's a nice guy. Everything's great. And for some reason, your, your grandfather experiences bankruptcy. That door is closed. It's not related to hardship or anything else. That door is just closed. Maybe there are other doors that the Lord will provide for you, but that particular door is closed. God sovereignly worked through some circumstances that brought about bankruptcy or whatever else. And so that source of provision for your college education was not available. That's a real closed door. Uh, difficulties are not a closed door. So we want to make that distinction. So does God control circumstances? He absolutely does. Every single one of them. Uh, he controlled the circumstances that allow every one of us to be here this morning. We slept through the night, hopefully. And we got here and we drove over here. The Lord... The Lord allowed us to get here safely and walk through the front door and we're, we're vertical and we're breathing. and All of that is God's hand. If, hand. if his hand was not in that, we wouldn't be here doing this. We would be in a pile of mush on the floor right now. But what we need to look here again is that man's thoughts are at the center of this process. So be wary of this. Be on guard against this. And the last area is a sign-seeking approach. This is a method for finding God's unrevealed will, looking for special events or coincidences before you make your decision, believing that God will secretly and clearly communicate through that event what decisions should be made. And again, this is never taught in Scripture. So you're believing that God communicates through events and circumstances. And I'll tell you a story from my own life. Uh, it happened in the summer of 1986. I was 20 years old and I was involved with the high school outreach of Campus Crusade, which is now known as Crew. 
And I was talking with a man who was on staff with them. And he was relating to me the story of how it was that he became involved with Campus Crusade. And he told me the story that he was standing on the beach in San Diego. and He was standing far above the shoreline. And he said, Lord, if you want me to be involved with this ministry, bring those waves up around my feet. And I will take that as your indication to me that I must be involved with that ministry. And that's what happened. The water came up around his feet and he made the decision to join that ministry. True story from the summer of 1986 when I was 20 years old. I don't know how long he lasted. I don't think he lasted terribly long. He's a godly man, but he was using a very unbiblical method of making a decision. And the reason why is it's completely arbitrary. Man defines the sign. Man defines the meaning of that sign. All of those things are up to man. Listen to what scripture says about people who crave for a sign. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 and 39. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now what was evil here that the Pharisees wanted was a demand on God to produce something. God does not provide exclusive communication to an individual through events in nature or politics or economics or agriculture or anywhere else. He does not provide exclusive communication to us. He provides his communication to us through his word. Second Peter chapter 1. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. So we're not to use the events themselves as the basis for our decision making. Does God cause those events? He absolutely does. But God doesn't tie those events to a particular decision and the meaning that must be made in that decision. This is a method for discovering God's unrevealed will that is man-centered because it uses man's interpretation of the events, not principles from Scripture as the basis for our decisions. So Scripture endorses none of those six methods of making a decision. Absolutely none of them. And why? Because God does not desire for us to know his unrevealed will before we make a decision. That's part of God's design for us. He's given us an area of freedom. His design is that we don't actually know what will take place before we pursue something. So we need to know how to make decisions biblically. And again, I'm going to give six principles that help us. And this is what we need to focus on. And these are so helpful. Again, they're basic. They're, they're not things that are going to be earth shattering. They're going to be very basic, very normal, very common. I'm going to take another time out. So the first is in God's strength, by God's grace, be obedient to God's revealed will. When you're trying to make a decision in an area of freedom, be obedient to God's revealed will. Where God has clearly revealed his will, those 1100 instructions in your New Testament, make sure that you're being obedient there. Make sure you've got that right before you're trying to make a decision that relates to his unrevealed will. And the reason is that good decisions flow out of a holy life. Read James chapter 3, 
It's about verse 16. Where does wisdom come from? Wisdom comes from living a pure and holy life. You need a lot of wisdom to make a good decision. So if contentment is a major issue in your life, if profanity is a major issue in your life, if drunkenness is a major issue in your life, if greed or envy or gossip or slander is a major issue in your life, deal with those before you make a big decision. Some of these decisions we have to make are pretty huge. You're going to see more clearly when the sin is out of your life, and then you can see the issues that are at hand. So live a holy life when you're making a decision. Live a holy life all the time, and it'll have bearing on your decisions. So that's the first thing. That's the most important thing. So that's why we need to be reading our Bibles, so that we know what those instructions are that we need to obey. Every year when I'm reading through my Bible and my Bible reading plan, I, I get to places and oh, I forgot all about that. That's why it's good to read the full counsel of Scripture. Maybe you don't read through the Bible every year, but get the full counsel of Scripture. Know what God says in Zechariah. All right, the second is to pray. It's amazing how many times we can look at a decision. We can do lots and lots and lots of things about making that decision. We can do lots of legwork and lots of everything else, and we don't pray. Isn't it easy not to pray about something? Well, pray. Prayer is an essential part of any good decision. Let's go to James 1. You know the passage in James 1 at the beginning of the letter. James says, we consider it joy when we face trials of many kinds. We consider it joy. And we know that the reason why we can take joy in that is because God is using that trial to make us mature and complete. So that's really good. But then he says, right on the heels of that in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. That's prayer. Asking of God is prayer. And the kind of prayer we're talking about here is not the kind of prayer that you do when you're driving down the freeway. Should we pray when we're driving down the freeway? Yes, we should. We should. We should pray without ceasing. We should pray when we're walking from our chair in the office to the restroom, which is 200 yards away. We should praise God and thank God and do lots of things. What we're looking at here is that dedicated time of prayer where your eyes are shut and you're not doing anything else. Your device is over there and you're thinking about your life. You're thinking about the decision. You're remembering what you've been reading in your Bible. And this is why it's so important because when you're alone with God in prayer, lots of really good things start to happen that really help you think right about making a decision. And the first is that you remember God's sovereignty and his purposes and everything. So you've got this decision and it just helps you understand this is not all about me. God is sovereign in this. And your prayer time helps you see that because you're remembering to yourself that God saved you. You're remembering lots of other things. Another thing that's really good in this process of praying about a decision is you're confessing your own sin. The very thing that's keeping you from making a good decision, you're confessing and you're turning from. And so you're getting all the gunk out of your life so you can see the issue more clearly. I know what happens with me when I pray over something is the, the relevant passages come to mind. So the third thing is that relevant scripture, relevant principles come to mind. I stop and I open my eyes and I open my Bible and I find that passage and I pray through it. And, hey, this actually has bearing on my decision here. I need to remember this. 
Fourth thing that happens when you pray is you're expressing gratitude and thankfulness to the Lord. You're praying about, should I buy this? Should I do this? Should I go there? When thankfulness is in your mind, when it is in your heart, that helps you see your, your issue in the right light because you're already thankful for the, all the other things that God has provided for you. And then the fifth thing is that you gain an eternal perspective. So whether you've got four hours left in your life or you've got four decades left in your life, you're thinking rightly, you're thinking eternally. And this decision is not the be all and the end all in your life. It might be a really big deal, but human history isn't gonna hinge on your decision. When you're thinking about who Christ is, he's coming back, he's the Messiah, just like Holly told us. He's coming back, he's gonna rule on this earth and believers are gonna be there ruling with him. And our decision here is gonna be in the rear view. So those things happen when you pray. And those things all feed into making a really good decision. But remember what you're not praying for. You're not praying for an open door. You're not praying for a sign. And you're not praying for a word from the Lord. You're praying for God's wisdom, right? God, I need wisdom in this. Help me. And then trust him that he's going to provide it for you. So again, we need to be reading our Bibles so that when we're praying, those scriptures that we've been reading do come to mind. If we're not reading our Bibles... We're uh, robbing the storehouse that God has for us to, to bring to bear on our issue. Thirdly, gather information and counsel. We talked about gathering information and why that's so important. We're going to focus here on gathering counsel. If you're in this church, you've got Christians all around you. If you're in a small group, which I hope you are, you've got Christians all around you. There are people that you can talk to. Counselors help us th with things. They help us remember biblical truths. They help us remember biblical truths and principles that we may have forgotten. You know, we have this, this view. We can see this much. And our counselor sees this much. And some of what they, they see is overlap and some of it is new for us. And that's very, very helpful. Our, our counselor helps us see our situation more accurately. But it's important to make sure that you've got the right counselor, the right kind of counselor, somebody who is stable and mature in their walk in the Lord, somebody who is well-grounded in the word. They're going to give you God's thoughts. They're not going to give you their thoughts primarily. It's somebody who they themselves are living a holy life. They're being obedient to the word. And you need to know that whoever your counselor is, you need to know that they're making their decisions in a biblically informed way. So that when they come to you, this idea of making a biblical decision is not new territory for them. You look at their life and you say, they are acting with some wisdom. I need to talk to that guy. And don't shy away from seeking counsel from the one who isn't afraid to say the hard things to you. No, you don't need to go after that. Or you really should consider not going after that. Because that person loves you. They're in the body of Christ with you. They're part of the same body. They want the body to function well. I'm going to give you two Proverbs that we're going to look at, and then I'm going to mention two other passages that will help us. This is really, really helpful. One of my favorite verses on the issue of counsel is Proverbs 12, 15. Uh, I put that somewhere else. Oh, yeah, here it is. The way of an ignorant fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to counsel. What was that, Proverbs 12:15. I'm going to give you three. 1215 was the first one. The second one is 1114. 
Where there is no guidance, the people fail. You're going to fail with no guidance. But in abundance of counselors, there is salvation. That's really good. That's 11.14, then 20.18. This one I really, really like because it, it speaks to the issue. Thoughts are established by counsel. And the idea of established there means strengthened, fortified. You give it a foundation with counsel. So make war by guidance. If you're going to do something big, like going to war, do it with guidance. Because that guidance is what gives you a foundation. 2018. And then 1310 and 27.9 say the same thing. Next, we're going we're gonna to look at scripture in the next two principles. And the first is, does the Bible speak directly to my decision? This has some overlap with principle number one of living a holy life. If God has given you clarity from his word on that issue, it makes your decision pretty simple. You just need to obey that. But you don't obey it mechanically and say, well, I'm just going to do it because I have to. You obey it because that is what God has said is good and right. And you can take contentment and joy and comfort in making that decision because God has instructed you on that. What kind of person should I marry? I should marry a person who loves Christ if I already love Christ. What should I do in my situation as I'm planning to go to a brother or a sister in sin? I need to be kind. I need to be clear. I need to be ready to admonish and exhort and all of those things. When God has given you instructions, obey those instructions and find rest and comfort in knowing that that is what is right and good. If you're in a job that requires you to do something that's expressly forbidden in Scripture, you may need to get out of that job. If you're looking for a job that requires you to do something that's expressly forbidden in Scripture, you probably need to look for a different job. All right, so then we look at the fifth principle of how does Scripture speak indirectly into my decision? Notice this one is not, does Scripture speak indirectly? It's, how does it speak indirectly? Because Scripture does speak indirectly into our issues. The Bible may not directly address your specific decision, but it does provide you with principles from the first to the last page of your Bibles. And this is, again, why we need to be reading our Bibles so that we know what those principles are. We're gathering them. We're just familiar with them. They come to mind when we're thinking of what to do. We talked about buying a new car. You can do all the work on whatever, but make sure that you're thinking carefully and you're thinking clearly about what does scripture say about debt? What does it say about contentment? What does it say about stewardship? What is this going to do to my heart? That's probably the biggest Thing in this whole thing is look at what scripture says you're already living a godly life pursue godliness and holiness but but as it comes to what i must be doing here is i need to know the principles from scripture that i would bring to bear on this decision and the last is you've done all of these things you've prayed you're being obedient you're living a godly life you're seeking counsel you're getting good counsel you're getting counsel from lots of people and you're not getting counsel from lots of people for the purpose of finding the one that, that suits you. 
when you get counsel from lots of people, I forgot to mention this, what you're doing is you're getting counsel from people and where there's a lot of overlap or there's a lot of commonality, that's where you need to focus. Occasionally somebody will say something that everybody else leaves out. Give that some thought too. But if you talk to three people and they all say pretty much the same thing, and these are godly people, they're reading their Bibles, they love the Lord. There's good things in that. So if you're doing all of these things and you're using your Bible, you're looking for clear instructions, you're looking for principles, you are free to make a decision that you desire. Make the decision you desire, but do it humbly. Lord, I've done all the work. If it involves resources, these resources belong to you in the first place. If it involves your time, your time belongs to the Lord in the first place. If it relates to your appearance, your appearance belongs to the Lord in the first place, right? Make the humble decision and you know you're, you're in a good place. You can, you can move forward with peace and contentment and you can be secure in knowing that whatever the outcome is, the outcome is God's will. So you've done all this good work and what happens when the decision goes south on you? It's, it doesn't work out the way you thought it would. You buy something and it breaks or you, you buy something and it's not what it was advertised to be. Understand that the decision didn't backfire. That was God's will. You did everything biblically. You, you made an earnest attempt to, to find the right decision. And you came to a decision. It's in an area of freedom. And it just doesn't turn out the way you, you think it will. That was God's will. And that is God's will. You think about James 1. We mentioned it just recently. God is using that to grow you. That doesn't mean your decision was a bad decision. It means that God had thoughts and purposes and plans that you could not anticipate. And those are designed specifically for your maturity and your completeness, your holiness, your sanctification. So God will accomplish his objective in your life. He absolutely will. He will accomplish his purposes. Philippians 1 tell us that God is very committed to finishing the work that he began in you. And he is going to use his purposes in your life and he's going to use your biblical decision-making process as a part of that but he will accomplish his purposes so you can rest in that let's pray lord i'm thankful for these ladies i'm thankful that you did a work of saving them i'm thankful lord that the gospel is powerful and that none of us are the kind of people that we used to be i'm thankful lord that you've given us a mind that can understand your word. You've shined the light of the gospel into our dark minds so that we can understand scripture and we are completely different and we are no longer bound by sin. Lord, I pray for my friends here today. I pray for myself that you would grant us wisdom and how to look at our lives. Lord, whether they're massive decisions or whether they're decisions that seem more insignificant, I pray that you would help us. You'd grant us the wisdom we need to pursue those decisions in a way that is pleasing and honoring to you. Lord, I pray that when the world around us looks at us and they watch us making our decisions, that it would be a testimony as to your grace and your goodness in us that would be very, very compelling to them. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.